Dennis, this is episode four. We made it. Uh, amazing. And yet another milestone reached. Yeah. And, you know, this one was actually uh, questionable because I think last week it was like, oh, we're doing these because we haven't got any, you know, bad feedback yet. We got bad feedback already. <laughs> Shocking. This is why we weren't going to let anyone listen. There, there's a small group of beta listeners mm-hmm. that mostly are constituted by podcast guests that I have on the throwback segment. <laughs> the okay. overlap is very strong there. Um, and one of them, um, who actually you'll be hearing from a little bit later, uh, DOP, as well as somebody else, um, who, uh, I, I know through DOP, both commented that, uh, they, they liked the premise of last week's episode, or at least I'm going to say that (laughs) the thing that they were, they took issue with. So last week, the shared secret was that, uh, threat intelligence was like a complete waste. And at some point in that segment, I mention threat hunting as kind of a trigger word. And I had a long conversation over Slack about how threat hunting is a real thing. Did you know this? Yes. Well, do you... Hmm. I mean... You tell me what you think threat hunting means. And I'm going to tell you if it's the thing that I hate or if it's the thing that I've been recently convinced by the beta listener pool that does add value. Okay. Yeah, threat hunting, as I I understand it, is going out and sort of checking for signs of compromise uh, in your environment. Yes. um, Maybe. One, is that just like forensics, like incident analysis? I mean, there's a fine line. And and I I think, you know, uh, you're one of the people I very commonly complain to words about uh, (laughs) in in life where, you know, we pick a word for something um, that doesn't have a definition yet. And then everybody defines it in, in a slightly different way or anything mm, like that. Okay. But, and, and actually those, the people, uh, DOP, uh, actually said it should have a better name. Um, you know, he, he liked to think of it more as, you know, he, he was thinking about maybe using the word anomaly in the name. Maybe we'll have him on to talk about that specifically. But so when I think, so you, you're like, okay, well going and doing some, um, you know, deep dive analysis to look for you. I think what do you use for indicators of compromise? Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to me, in my head, that's basically like breach some type of of incident response forensic activity. But there's this notion of like, well, we don't know if we are compromised or aren't compromised, and you know, I dislike the word threat hunting. Because threat, if something is a threat to you, it hasn't already hurt you. So I tend to think of that as like, well, that's a, you know, you haven't been, you've already been compromised. So then it's like incident response. But then there's this other side of things where there's a proactive activity where you're thinking about, you know, data that you have, systems that you have, integration that you have and constructing or maybe running one-off or or these analytical efforts to try to find anomalies that either lead you to saying, okay, yes, uh, we found actually some piece of information here that's odd enough that we think, you know, we we start a deeper forensics investigation of, or 
let's operationalize this thing by improving our security monitoring. And those are both things that I've done a lot in my career, but never once lumped into a category or name of threat hunting. I, I've always uh, okay. considered those as like, well, that's how you close the knowledge loop on your security detection, right? Like you run experiments um, you think about, uh, like you use incident data to say, well, how could I have best caught that issue? You think about, um, you know, all the data available to you and, 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 you know, uh, finding deviations or constructing things. In fact, I remember like going to, I, I once got a contract at a hospital and they had bought a, a network anomaly detect type of thing that had all of these, I, I guess, machine learning rules or like threshold-based learning, you know, where where you would train it um, to what was normal and then it would try to find, you would put it into, you know, alert mode and then it would, it would alarm, right? Like, and I, it was supposed to be a security tool. Um, and none of that threshold or alarming was really working very well. So like I got creative and probably wrote like 20 or 30 good rules. Like, um, you know, I had a list of hosts that uh, were like, I had a whole networks that weren't supposed to contain any Unix hosts. Right. So I would write a rule that was like, okay, well, if anybody's connecting to these 14 different well-known Unix ports, that's somebody doing something nefarious or, mm. you know, somebody attempting it. So like I, you know, uh, so that type of thing, right. You have data, let me probe the data, um, you know, in a new way or, or, and then, you know, modify or, you know, and also I've done base like a lot of time doing baselining um, in infrastructure operations. Like you always get to that point where it's like, Oh, can we upgrade our SSL? We're going to break these 14 browsers. Right. Well, you know, going down the path, doing the analysis and saying, Hey, this, you know, I, we, we checked the, you know, we, we had either, you know, HTTP access logs, or we had, you know, full ring, you know, uh, or network, uh, a capture ring buffer of the last three days. And we can pretty accurately say that, you know, that's going to impact only, you know, this very small percentage of people, right. So writing justifications for it using kind of the same skills of deduction and things like that. And and I was always a bigger, you know, network analysis guy, but so I've always kind of lumped that into, you know, the continuous integration or the continuous improvement of security detection mechanisms um, is to think about, you know, run an experiment, then operationalize it and refine it. Apparently it's got a new name and um, I don't think the name's very good, but I do think that the the activity and value is there and got lumped in. So let's revisit the score. If I take, uh, let's, you, you famously rated me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think Four? I am. Um... Oh, yeah, probably. It was a tough you, one. That yeah, you really nailed me last week and gave me uh, <laughs> you know something to think about. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'd like to hear what the beta listeners would have rated you. I think I might have even been generous nines. in their eyes. No, I asked them that. It was all nines. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, they, this was actually a very minor point to their their oh, love. Yeah. Most of the adorning um, that we <laughs> that we that I get on a weekly basis from hmm. the six people that uh, are in our beta listener group. But yeah, so. Uh, that's on me. Um, yeah, okay. I do think overloaded that that terminology. Well, and in this thing, uh, like multiple people were a part of this conversation in this se- shared secret chat room that I have. 
and then people like actually started to look, try to look up the definition and there's a bunch of places where the definition makes no sense. <laughs> like, you know, it like includes examples. Like I think somebody like looked at Wikipedia, that was awful. So if you're, if you know what this stuff is and have access to, uh, you haven't been banned for Wikipedia for playing some sort of prank <laughs> already, uh, go out and fix that stuff because it, it's pretty hard. And yeah. And we've got, we've picked a lot of bad names for something and I, I'll put that into the category of, of, are you really hunting threats? And also we have a definition of threats. That's a, that's another bad one, but I tend to think of a threat as a person who might potentially attack me or is trying to attack me in some way. Um, or, you know, and I think I think it's hard to necessarily say you're threat hunting when you're doing, you know, analysis to find anomalies to lead to conclusion. It's just well, I think that you're going to need to put like a show glossary in the in the show notes once you once you get a good website up and running around this. Yeah, well, that's famous I, I podcast. Think, I think that the we got to you know consistently disambiguate words that you know even we we share a lot of common definitions of, and I think that's the. That's the job here. So we, we got to keep the, what, what does this, I mean, imagine if DevOps had a better name, would it have gained more traction if it had a better name? Well, I think it's gaining many, pretty good traction. Well, I would say. You I think mean, that there I started, are. I, I listened to Gene Kim give a talk in mm-hmm. Minneapolis community college about DevOps in 2009 and I felt like for the next six years, people still kept asking what DevOps meant. So maybe <laughs> I, I just I, I wonder. It's I think it gains traction because there's there's a lot of of um, um, you know as as the philosophy of it and, and things like that. I think it makes a lot of sense. But I I don't know. I don't think we picked a good name, or I didn't pick the name for it. But I, I think cloud as well, right? I think. Cloud was a little. Uh, now everybody understands probably the same definition of cloud, but from 2008 to 2012, I think I had a lot of conversations about what cloud was. Mm. Well, I, I think for me, I would say that DevOps is gaining speed. I'm probably a bit jaded uh, being a OWASP chapter lead because I just felt like the past two years have been getting inundated with people that want to talk or vendors that want to talk about how their solution enables DevOps. And I just feel like I'm getting, do they come in with slide number one and like, this is what DevOps is. Oh, totally. I mean, okay, it's all, well, like, then, I, then that proves my point. If they still have to come to an OWASP talk in Dallas and their slide, they can't just jump into their content. Well, that's just good exposition. Keep... I mean, come on. So, I don't know. Well, I don't know. what a computer is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know. We're getting anyway, bit by language, I... Dennis. <clears throat> okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we'll chalk up the th- the threat hunting to overloaded terminology, um, and uh, I guess we'll just keep a a, a, a keen no, eye out for that hit. going forward. I mean, we're not we're not writing off. I'm taking the hit. I threw something Ooh, in there. Okay. All right. But I do think out of the you know forty or fifty people I meet that you know, fall into that same category we were talking about last week of not having a tremendous amount of, a lot of them are mentioning threat hunting as an activity and I don't believe them still. So, ah, okay. Uh, okay. So anything, 
anything up top? You no icebreaker. That was our icebreaker this week. Anything? Uh, do you wanted to say before we dive into this, or you? What we, where are we at? Uh, I will. Uh, only thing of note: just uh, I had finished the boys' graphic novel after loving the Amazon TV show, so I finished the graphic novel today. It's excellent, <laughs> crazier than the TV show. So I don't know if you ever got into that, but uh, it, it's really making me eager for season three to come out. And I should say that Amazon sponsorship is really coming in handy. We've already <laughs> sold out. Amazon was hot on our heels. They're like, oh, talk about AWS mm-hmm. and sprinkling the boys. And, um, you know, you can, oh, we got a free Twitch follow on Prime or whatever. You know, yeah, get whatever. me free. T- uh, you need to do the negotiating. You need to get me a free Prime membership. Mm, I mean, seems like it's basically free for what it is anyway. Okay. So yeah, Amazon, uh, not, not a sponsor of the podcast and not, uh, not endorsing them, uh, as, as anything other than you liked the boys content and went back, looked at the source material. Is that one of those things that they enacted the comic book? Okay. Yep. And you like the source material, which is an adult comic book known as a graphic novel. <laughs> yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, I like the show too. Let's, uh, what's next? Dennis. Gav. I have a a secret, Dennis. Uh, Would you care to share that secret? Yeah. Let me just look at how I phrased this first. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Here, here's quite simply how this phrases like platform diversity makes our security challenges exponentially more difficult. Okay. Platform diversity makes our security challenges exponentially more difficult. Let's disambiguate some of this language here, right? In platforms, like what am I thinking of a platform? Kind of, some people might call it a tech stack, but we have infrastructure, OS, you know, app middleware application, those each one of those little paths up, you know, the entire kit and computable uh, layer one through seven software, you know, those those pipelines, right? And um yeah, think of those different tech stacks and and things like that and and Think about the divergence of it, like the diversity divergence. Um, so we've, we've got a lot of these different things like, okay, well, maybe we share some same, same infrastructure. Maybe we don't. Maybe we're a multi-cloud thing, right? So you can, you can deviate from the get-go there or something like that. Um, operating systems, and then, you know, you have layers and layers of operating systems these days. You have, um, you know, bare metal through container, through, you know, thread in a container, um, all these different tech stacks and not only that, but different microservices you might play into, you might have multiple, you know, IAM solutions, but, and these are good things in a lot of ways, like having the diversity available. Um, I'm not, not saying that's bad, but most of the security problems we are struggling with get harder with each one of those branches, right? Mm-hmm. Are you following where I'm, I'm you, you smelling what I'm 
cooking? Is that the same? <laughs> I don't know if that's the same. Do you smell what the Kev is cooking? <laughs> I definitely smell what the Kev is cooking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I smell what you're cooking. Okay. Okay. Here's... And, here's yep. No, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, so I see what you're driving that. at. I see, so I see what you're driving at, right? Like, this is as the... Uh, technology group, right? The development teams, the product teams, as they everybody. diversify. No, not, everybody. Well, yeah. Not okay. just that. Yeah, like even like... But the things that they run on, right? So I guess, yes, I'm referring to them at the top level, yeah. but they're running on the infrastructure, right? So as those things... Um, yeah, you know, every it, heterogeneous layer in there. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but let's say, okay, we're, we've got this bare metal, that bare metal... We're running, you know, Linux on both, but we're running Red Hat Enterprise on this side and uh, Ubuntu on that side. And and then, uh, you know, but this is all just even our open shift deployment. You know, we've got like just every one of those branches then creates a nuance that makes things that we're not good at even harder. We're not good at, for instance, let's just go from the ground up. Uh, let's start with um, something like bare metal. Well, we're not good at, at securing management and administration platforms for bare metal, right? Okay, we've got HP ILO, we've got all this other stuff. We're not good at creating management planes to administrate hardware securely for that stuff. And now we have some stuff that's serial connected and some stuff like it's just a harder problem than if, okay, we all have this one interface that we can, you know, uh, create a, a single solution for our security problem is harder. Uh, you know, so it branches there. That's not as bad as we get to the operating system branch, right? You got windows Linux, then you've got, maybe a couple of generations in play at any point in time on Windows side, maybe more cons- continuity there. But then, you know, maybe on the Linux side, again, a couple of generational things, maybe multiple distributions. But each one of those branches is going to need its own way to, um, or, or generally each one of, each flavor of, of all those things is going to need some type of, you know, patch deployment mechanism, you know, whether you're in, um, you know, using, yeah, what, whatever the, the solutions are. And even the heterogeneous uh, solutions that are trying to handle this diversity layer for you have challenges of saying, okay, yeah, I've got to use uh, a Debian um, package here, a dev, dev package here, an RPM here. Like they, it's just a concurrency. So all those little problems get, get um, created, but it like keeps stacking up and it really stacks up at the jump to application layer stuff. Middleware is in there. Databases is in there. And we got MySQL, Oracle. We've got SQL Server. All that stuff is in there. Um, and each one of these branches is hard. And we'd have a hard day if we were all running the same software on all of these platforms. But when it gets to the software layer, it becomes untenable if you don't start to have some mandate policy governance in to reduce the prolification and part of you you know what i'm saying like let me stop there yeah stop here because i want to add so let me ask a couple questions then yeah Mm -hmm. so you know as 
it becomes more and more heterogeneous, right? The environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. like, what have you, what, what are the risks that, that these AppSec teams and maybe AppSec and infrastructure security teams are running into, right? Like, do you, do you think yeah. that they okay, just sort of stick point. to what they know or, and let this new stuff sort of fall through or, you know, what's the risk that, that from well, the security perspective? Risk, risk of, of not, okay, if you're going to try as one of those teams to limit diversity, where, you know, in terms of if you if you want to manage the risk of diversity through governance, say like not allowing people to do something, the obvious risk there is friction. You're going to piss people off, and you know we're spoiled these days that there are so many amazing development tech stacks and platforms, and so many different right tools for the job, and and all that. So that I I get it. Um, so the risk of not doing it, I think we'll talk most of the of the podcast about, um, you know, the, the challenges that are maybe some specific challenges, because I really want to make sure that there's, there's concrete examples laid out. So we'll get into some co- concrete problems with all this diversity in a second, but the risk of not doing it is you're that security, uh, guys making everything harder because you're saying I've got to use maybe different set of tools or some, some stuff that doesn't work as well, or we're not as fast. We're not as, so it's mostly friction. Um, and you know, maybe some other, you know, some real business impacts of, of friction as well. Like maybe you're delaying getting to market if they have to re-implement okay. something. But, that but let's say, let's say you're not the hardcore governance type, right? You're not trying to restrict people's ability to experiment with new platforms and frameworks and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So from the security side, like what is the security team opening themselves up to? Or what, what have, have you seen sort of how they gravitate? Yes. Uh, yes. So the, the problems, what are, what are the reasons that things are exponentially more difficult? Is all of the assurance things we want to do to make, you know, through, through the various layers, but let's, let's pick code for instance, right? There is a bunch of stuff we want to do to make sure we have good code, code that's resilient to attack. So the challenge is what if somebody picks a language where we don't have good automated code review tools for like then our coverage is going to be low. We're going to be more likely to not be able to convert unmanaged issues to manage issues. There's some business problems with this as well. Meaning like, can we afford to have 14 different types of static analysis tools that are each tuned to each offshoot? You know, that, that I think is, is a real issue, but just from a technical perspective, what happens most of the time is like, okay, you can use that thing, but you need to implement your own version of this and its effectiveness, you know, may not be as equivalent. Mm -hmm. You may not get good coverage from whatever tool you're using. So then we're sacrificing coverage for which is going to, and we're introducing risk of compromise because we can't find, we're not effective at finding security vulnerabilities in a particular branch of this offshoot, wherever it deviated or in maybe it. Yeah. So the problem is really that, that your ability to, to design and implement new controls shifts down a layer. And then it, it has to, it, you 
then you have to motivate engineering to really own those types of things. Yeah. Right. And you I, can't and, drive. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, well, I just think that that, that whole example that you were giving or, or like sort of mock conversation where it's ultimately like, okay, you're not going to use one of our supported tools. So you figure out what works and your mileage may vary, but that sort of your mileage may vary guidance, right? Like should a security team really be saying your, your, you know, your mile, like, yep, go do something and, you figure out how well it works and like, that seems like a, re- a weird well, may- thing to do for a risk. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the, it's, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Like I'm either going to work really hard to come up with a good solution for each of these tech stacks, which I actually can't do unless I start to govern the tech stacks because there's so many good choices out there at any scale or size of company. That's working, you know, let's just say, I think we used a billion dollars last week. I mean, whatever it is, it's like, there's so much good stuff out there that people are going to gravitate towards their favorites and you won't be able to give them thoughtful or proven solutions for anything but a subset of those. And a subset means that you're going to limit them to a particular set of tech stacks. You're going to govern those tech stacks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I think you're exposing another thing too, right? Which is, <clears throat> I know that we like to keep our policies, you know, high level, right? Not very, not, not too prescriptive in terms of tooling, but really when the rubber hits the road, it's largely tooling, right? That, that <laughs> measures whether or not we are adhering to these things. So mm-hmm. um, very often, mm-hmm. like you're mentioning, right? Like, okay, the policy is scan your code, but the company will have bought a tool, Right. So it's really, okay, use this tool is, is the guidance, right? I, and then you're sort of on your own if that tool doesn't work for what you're trying not, to do. Not only on your own, but let's, let's go back to, uh, I, you know, I'm an incentive models guy, right? Yes. So very, very big on the I'm incentive a, models. Let's say little Kevy's a developer and he's got a particular thing he needs to build. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, okay, ETL, right? So I'm going to use our language to build an ETL tool. You know, okay, right, right fit for the, the job, maybe whatever it is, or I'm, I've got some background in that. None of the static, okay, so, so right there, okay. And I come to you, Dennis, the uptight security guy. Hey, Dennis, can I use R for that? Dennis, psst, can I use R for this? Yes. No, you can't. I'm uptight. So oh my God. You, you, which one is it, Dennis? I'm a customer of the I, security department. I, and I, Please, I, you've I given me so many answers. You're wasting I, my time. I am, I am the uptight security guy in this role play, so I would clearly say Oh, no. okay. And I just meant that you, you personally are uptight comma the security guy. But either way you go. Let's first say, Dennis, Dennis, first tell me no. Dennis, can I no. use R for this? No, you may not. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to my boss and tell him that there's going to be a two year delay because you're going to make me use what language is supported? Uh, something that's not R. <laughs> you what your four year computer science. Major. You're going to, you're going to use Python, 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 Python is supported. Um, which is actually, you know, the competing main competing here in the ETL space. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I know I'm going to tell him because we don't have this graphing library and then this thing really expects these kind of charts. So I'll just 
tell him how much money the security department's costing me. Uh, and also I don't know how to write in Python. So I'm going to have to go to Python school and get a degree in Python and all these problems. And man, you suck, Dennis. Uh, Mr. Dennis, this is, uh, this is Jim, your, your department manager. Why are you giving little Kev a hard time over there? He just wants to use R. What's the problem? Was your dad a pirate? Yeah. Do you hate R? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So now friction. the puns come okay, out. Right? So friction. now what, okay. what, uh, Dennis, this is Kev again. Hey. Hey. I heard you got chewed out. Oh, very bad by Jim, I think his name was. You don't know your boss's name? No wonder you got chewed out. Uh, hey, so after that chewing out, can I use R? Yes, you may use R. But, okay, you know, you're telling me I can use R, but I'm, I mean, so obviously I get an exception to your application security policy? Well, clearly, uh, unless the, there is another tool that you find that can do what our tools do. Well, why would I look for that? That's your job, Dennis. You're the security guy. I'm just triggering this mm. incentive model thing, right? Kev's job is to build this piece of code as fast as possible to check. The, I mean, we did we kind of did this on, a little bit in the CS degree episode, right? Of let me get functional code going. You're this application security guy. You're trying to manage this balance of, okay, we've got a new ask here, a new thing. And the idea is that your AppSec policy, the things that you want done across the board for your software security effort, probably has some things in it that aren't going to apply to R or are going to be um, ineffective in R or something. Like, like, let's go through the common ones, right? Like, what does an AppSec policy maybe typically require of a development group in terms of assurance measures? Something like... We, we hit the static analysis one maybe a little bit or something like that, but mm-hmm. do you want to like just name a couple? Sure. Yeah. We can sure. Go through? Yeah. So there could be like design review. Are you talking about just in general in the SCLC or something specific? Yeah. To yeah just, just name like four, three, just so I can, I can, we can talk about the context of this or the scalability problem of, of all this different stuff in, in context of these different Security checkpoints. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So let's talk with design review gates. Um, yeah. Design, sec- d- design review is a good one. So not, not only is platform diversity a different problem, but design review is like one of the most intensive things from like a capability and analytical depth that we need to do, right? To understand and vet whether or not a design is good. It takes a lot of time, right? Mm-hmm. Now- yep. If we have very common, I mean, common tech stacks have common architectures. So we get to operate our design review at the nuance difference at the application layer or the, the where it branches off the application layer. We trust that our network security is going to work like this at this layer. We trust that our hosts are going to be resilient to man and middle attacks at this layer. You get reusability from... Um, from the threat modeling perspective so that you could spend time being creative or applying the creative thought process that's required to do threat modeling. Well, at the, the new layer that's different, which is we've written a different piece of software that's running on this tech stack, which actually does need to happen. And even that is going to be a time intensive uh, barrier, but think about 
okay, now I got to go and, and rethink, you know, is this new tech stack going to be resilient to um, transmission control issues? Like you have to step down a layer and repeat and redo and rebuild and, and you're not going to have as much time or you're just, it's going to take a longer effort to threat model something comprehensively when you're dealing with new thing, new middleware, right? Oh, now the database talks, now I'm interacting with a database that's distributed across all of these application servers, not isolated in this container on the DMs, you know, on the, on the back end or whatever. Right. So all of those nuances hurt the threat modeling effort because you got to shift down and, and rehandle all the architectural differences that, you know, wherever it deviated. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just like more things. There's less that you could rely on, let's say whatever your, uh, building blocks, right? Your building right. blocks, your library you of, of pre-canned yeah, analysis, exactly. right? Your pros and cons for things you've already vetted. Exactly. You, you so have to more. go back to whatever level and and start building. And it's if threat threat modeling is in general one of the hardest things to scale. And I always say that it's like you you really can't scale up threat modeling. You can scale down architectures. And I think that that's that statement is true. And that really what it's doing is just rephrasing this platform diversity thing, mm-hmm. like reusable components, pre-approved swim lanes, those types of things. Those are all nice guy versions of limiting tech stacks. Okay. Are you ready for another gate? Do you want to hit the SAS yeah, gate? Or are we already, gate. We already covered SAS gate or a different gate? Let's cover Sasgate because I, I, oh, I wanted to get in my incentive models thing. So I, I have R and you're going to ask me to pump my R through you, you Google, do research, you find the best R linter, you know, and maybe you hire a um, security firm and give them a week of time to do an R manual code review. Like that would probably be the best version of what you, Dennis, um, can do in a situation where you have something that you don't expect to be a mainline platform and you still want to allow it, but you still want to have some assurance of it. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm not going to just pull the risk accepted, you know, uh, yeah, forward. well, I mean, right. I mean, that's, that's happening a lot too. Right. <laughs> um, but all of those things are not as effective finding defects in my R application then the mainline tool is at finding defect in my mainline tech stack. So I'm actually going to get less security results back and have less to fix. So now I finish this project and I come back to you and and now I've got a 50-50 chance. Maybe Python's just as good at what I want to do than R is, but my job is to get stuff done faster and I'm not going to get as many results back from the R config that Dennis let me run last time because the tooling isn't as effective. So which path am I going to go on? I'm going to use R again because I'm not going to submit myself to having to fix all those bugs that you can find with Python. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the incentive model thing of like, yeah, sometimes people pick tech stacks where the security tools don't work very well, simply to subvert security process. Okay, I see where you're going with that with the incentives. I'm not. I, I don't, don't know if true? I've. I don't know if I've run into that in my. Um, 
where I've seen someone decide at the beginning of a project what platform that they want to run on and they choose something where the security tools give you the least amount of output. I'm not, I don't know mm-hmm. that that is happening. I, I mean, I guess I, <laughs> I've never been a fly in the wall when I, people were conspiring for that. But what I okay. will say, before, what I will say is that before our next, oh, go ahead. people will <laughs> happily use a tool uh, where it's like, and like they will be willfully ignorant. And so people will definitely be like, nope, don't worry. We run this tool. And it's like, okay, how many like rules does this tool have? A three. Okay. And how many findings have you ever had in this tool in the life of this you know, year over year project? Zero findings ever. And it's just like, okay. So, and you think that that's meeting yeah, the goal of the security Yeah, they're checking the box on your gate. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I guess maybe, I, I, I think as an exercise, you should find some developer that maybe you're, you know, you know from a different part of life and, and kind of explain or pitch this. But I've seen stuff like this uh, at all layers of the tech stack. And when you, when I just think about the perfect, when I, when I think about what people are trying to do um, maybe I have an intuition for, for when it's happening. Cause I, I do think I've, I I have seen this in in real life and, and it's largely about, it's not, it's not all dolled up and nobody's ever going to come out and say, well, I picked R because the tooling doesn't give me less, findings but when they start thinking about it and when they start going man it was a lot easier to get this done this way than it was to get it done in the old way it does move people towards the new way with maybe not even thinking about why it was faster for them to get the project done but sometimes I, it's faster for them to get the project I, done I think with the spirit of what you're saying control. is holding true and there mm-hmm. i think in your example maybe people are being a little bit more conniving in my example they're being a little bit more ignorant i have a okay I have a, a story to, to the to same share, end. Dennis. I if let me talk about a guy that I met in a decade that was not this decade. <laughs> in a in a lifetime where I'm responsible for vulnerability management of a Fortune 75, Fortune 80 company. And you know, vulnerability management, the same looks the same as it did then today, whatever. We had a lot of scanners going out and finding issues with a lot of systems. A lot of, um, I think it was, we were using a combination of Tenable and at the time, McAfee vulnerability manager, whatever. And that thing is running all the time. Um, and that was a big part of the job was like, okay, we're populating this big database thing and then moving the remediation. A guy who came in, he wanted to move from his current role into the security role and came up to my office and it was a position on my team and I interviewed him and I had interacted with him a little bit in his existing role. And at some point in the conversation, I think we were wrapping it up and I'm not sure if he could tell that I was already convinced he shouldn't, you know, I wasn't going to hire him for the job or not, but he told me that he had blacklisted on his servers the scan engine IPs so that his system were invisible and he stopped getting criticized for having open bugs <laughs> on those systems. Now he wasn't actually the person like there's a lot of reasons that bugs are hard to fix. 
And I think that maybe he was in a position where people were coming to him and saying, you've got to fix these bugs. Mm -hmm. But they were with middleware dependencies that could hurt the application and he couldn't get the developers to fix the application. Whatever the case, however he felt, he had no problems telling me a, you know, a director in the firm responsible for the very function of this like gross violation (laughs) of security. Like, so that's, you know, those, not just that person, but the, and and it was directly because of his incentive model. Right. And I don't remember what we did um, exactly. Um, I think maybe we, we kind of handled it just kind of like person to person of like, Hey, I, I get it. I, I know that, you know, these vulnerabilities tacking up and I can talk to, oh, I actually did that. I, I said you know, he needed more support uh, at his administration later. So they understood what the full change process, what the full fix process was going to require of the developers because he wasn't getting support from the development side of things because he was on like the infrastructure administration side of things. Um, so, yeah. I, I kind of looked at it. We 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 went from that instead of, but that so that that's an example where it, and and it's some of the dangerous types of things we do. Where okay, we want to get so strict about getting bugs. That's that's another thing. You know, I mean, we've I guess we've been kind of on a on a DevSecOps love fest lately um, between the two of us. But blame the the culture of managing blame right um of just like just fix it you know that kind of mentality part that's that's part of devops mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying the just fix it stuff yes the blameless um, post postmortems blameless right that fixes some of the incentive models if i put up a big security sla where dennis the uptight security guy is going to come over and yell at you and it's actually something that you can't get the dev team and then when you try you try to hold the dev team to the fire they've just got so much weight you know at the top of the the business that is like hey made we made two billion dollars you cost us 18 million dollars as a person so you know it's like it that's it's a boardroom uh boardroom challenge for sure so anyway um i I just wanted to share that like it if people think I'm being unfair about the incentive models and people doing things the easy way um, based on the personal factor, I'm not even blaming those people. I just think that people are going to act um, based on how they're, they're compensated, how they're motivated, how they're treated and what the culture is. And we are really bad at defining those things in a way that align with our security objectives. So people are going to act contrary to those security objectives. All right, a uh, bit of a tangent there. Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I agree with you, right? But in this example, this guy is hiding his stuff from everything, right? He's not making architectural or platform decisions about about okay, know, how he's going to construct this thing. Okay, but he I'm, is he's opting out of a security control based on the his the impact of his daily life, and if. I have the option to opt out of a good static analysis thing that's going to tell me about a million findings versus uh, something that, you know, there's not good coverage of, so I'm going to get less back. It's just like, that's, if, if those are my two doors, why would I ever walk through the, the one door? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I definitely, I agree. I mean, I think that people will subvert stuff uh, if 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 properly incentive, incented, right? Whether on purpose or not. Um, so you, I, I see what you're, the point you're trying to make there. Um, okay. Well, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, I don't know if a cliff notes version of the rest of my argument is, um, <laughs> some things are getting better about this because we're getting new tech stacks that can do a lot more and it seems really good, but then some things are also getting worse, which is like, man, we've got people gravitated in the last five years to one or two cloud platforms. Now they're, I mean, trying to think about multi-cloud solutions, cloud neutrality. What if you opt into, like, you've got all these decisions to make. Should I use the shared service version of this that Amazon's providing? Or, sh- like, sh- should I use Amazon's key management in, in one of the three different modes that they offer? Should I roll my own key management so that when I pivot to Azure, it looks the same? We've got all these new branches coming with all these great tech stacks, um, but uh, that's creating additional... Um, it, good and bad. Uh, I, I think that there's a l- lot more versatility. Uh, so, you, you know, if you do have a, you could probably get by with a smaller set of approved swim weights and do a lot more with them. Even things like, you know, that are so flexible, like, you know, maybe you do even opt into something, you know, like serverless code with Lambda. You can solve a lot of problems with a very small, um, you know, toolkit or tech stack. So, um, so good, good and bad, but, you know, the problem is not going to go away. So, um, yeah. And I think yeah. one thing that we touched on that, that I had brought up and you acknowledged and we just sort of moved right on, but it's, uh, you know, risk acceptance, right? I think I've definitely seen more people just go down the route of, you know, here's our supported stuff and anything that's outside of the tooling that they have for SAS or SCA or what have you, you know, is like, yep. Okay. Risk exception, right? Like you guys just go forward. You're not going to have that done. And I think that in my experience, I've seen a lot um, rather than people choosing platform, you know, because that's just like the security team, not even want, like they're the ones that aren't wanting to put up with the friction, right? They're just like, oh, okay. Or or like, you know, we're not going to do anything. You go get a risk exception. And Uh, and as long as things move quickly, it happens. Ooh, I did not. Let me send you the secret envelope. And okay. And now is this going to come through on... Next day delivery, UPS, you'll get it. <laughs> no. Uh, Are you... Re- this is the link again? Mm-hmm. Okay, nope. Okay, here we go. Bing, All right. Bing, bing. My... Uh, I would say that you have convinced me that... I guess to put it the other way, homogeneous tech stacks are easier for a security team to manage. I and it gets more difficult as it gets more diversified. I I believe that exponentially more difficult. Exponentially more difficult. I believe that as an eight. So let me see. I'm opening. Oh, six. Okay, a little bit of a course correction. Yeah, I got some points back from last. Dop is back. Back again. Dop is back. Hack again. I, that's off the top of my head. So good. <laughs> Freestyling? Somebody, is that uh, off the dome? Freestyling? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was hoping you would beatbox, but then I was like, eh, he's going to get his microphone wet. Um, yeah. My my buddy, uh, let me tell you the story on this. I had a podcast scheduled one night and something happened, a work event, and it wasn't blowing off because he came back and I reported a podcast later. 
But there I was, all geared up, all cabled in, mm-hmm. and I rearranged my desk to do the podcast. And right at the time he was supposed to show up, he didn't show up. What do I do? I complain about it in Slack. What does Dop do? He's like, I'm back. Let me get a whiskey, hop back on. Dop talks about his college years. Um, so this is episode two with Dop. Really love this one. Dop throws uh, throws a, a lot of stuff uh, out there, a lot of fun stories, mostly about uh, University of Illinois in uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, U of I, as it's called. Um, where he was an engineering student, so it just it, it goes pretty pretty deep there. So, um, yeah, Mike Mike Dop Dop, how do you back again? All right, Dop, welcome back. This is round two. How you doing, man? Uh, pretty good. It feels good to be your first return guest. First so. re- first return guest. Yeah, we we were talking, and there's a uh, there's a little bit more that uh, we we kind of covered the uh, the Dop hometown uh late 90s but you went to college in the late 90s so so we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh dop the college years continued huh so this is some stuff like i i uh was in touch with you and and visited once or twice um which is super nice of of you to let me uh let yet let a young kevin uh (laughs) drive up and, and visited college town for the first time but um yeah, I we had some some college shenanigans to to talk about. So, you mentioned on the last podcast you were not in the computer science department. You went to school for mechanical engineering, right? Yes, that's correct. I went to school. <clears throat> my my dad was a CAD draftsman. Um, he started his own business, um, and that's actually how we got our first computer. Um, mm-hmm. So I got into engineering and, and drafting, and thought that's what I wanted to do. But you know, computers were a hobby. Um, and that's uh, kind of what got me started in doing stuff in college. You and you actually gave me advice when I was graduating to not that I would be bored as a like a computer science major in college. So maybe there was some of yourself in, in that in terms of you know the, I, I don't know I, I assume, assume that advice was <laughs> was somewhat inspired by by, uh, by by what you thought and you were absolutely right so I was a, I was a pretty quick to drop out the first time but so so going to school for for mechanical engineering is that really heavy science and, and I recall um, you know a couple of the the stories from back in the day where you know these these tough UIs maybe you want to get into it a little bit of, of... yeah I mean so the first few years, Usually in, in most, uh, you know, like mechanical or electrical engineering uh, curriculums, at least at U of I where I went, um, you don't really get into your core stuff until like your junior, senior year. Mm-hmm. Your, 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 your first couple of years are, you know, are gen eds, so, you know, getting, you know, knocking out your high level math and, and knocking out your, your, you know, physics and chemistry and all that stuff that, you know, it kind of form the basis for the knowledge you have to have before you go into the ME classes where they tell you everything you learned was wrong and I have to relearn it. Um, so we, we had an, uh, and the nice thing about those classes where you're, you're sharing them with everyone else, like, uh, you know, like this, even, even the CS guys, or the electrical engineering guys, we'd all be in the same physics class, you know? So like mm-hmm. everyone on our dorm floor would be taking the exact same class at the same time. Um, and, and it was pretty sweet. And those classes had, you know, a crap ton of students in them. Like, this is one of those things where like you go to your, your, your physics class and there's several hundred people in here listening to lecture. And that's just one section, right? So, including the YouTube guy, right? Uh, was that that year? I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, he. But the guy here. who started YouTube was a classmate of yours, right? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know him, but I think it was it was okay. around that same time. Gotcha. Um, and, and several other famous people. Um, 
yeah, so so I guess to get into the first story, um, it was this, this physics class. Um, they they were just got into the the concept of doing homework online. So you'd have uh, you know, your mm-hmm. your lecture section, your your lab section, where you you know played with balls, knocking back and forth, and, and inertia and stuff. And then you'd have your your online simple web form where you enter your homework and 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 you know get credit and stuff. And it, there was like these. <clears throat> Uh, I think you're using news groups as a way to communicate. Students could communicate in news groups and and share, you know, how they solve the problems and stuff. So what would happen was, you know, no one was going to do their homework immediately, right? We're not, we're, I mean, we're nerds, but we're not that bad. So we'd wait till the last minute because if you wait till the last minute, then people would be giving, essentially giving the answers and the, and the formulas on the news group. Yeah, and, and I think we got we got good at computers because we were ignoring high school, right? So none of us were good were good students <laughs> comparatively to uh, to all the all the people that uh, that that uh, you know got those uh, valedictorians and stuff like that. None of them are good at computers. Yeah. So. Well, and, and kind of to follow up that, I mean, I I, I kind of had a natural knack for like basic physics, but like mm-hmm. when it got into like the the harder stuff, you know, like quantum mechanics and crap like that, like I had no idea what the hell they're talking about, and the physics department was not known for being a good communicator. So their, their questions were not written well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's it's the, the night before the homework is due and everyone is contacting the server trying to get answers and you can't do the homework now because it's it's dying. Like, you know, it takes, you know, five minutes to get a reply. So um, about that time, the famous Unix ping of death came out. Um, I don't know if you recall. I, I forget the number of, the number of yes, bytes. Yeah. You send, yeah, so you send a single ping packet to a Unix machine and it crashes. Yeah, tip, typically ping echo request packets like by default. It's it's determined by the operating system, but they're usually fifty six bytes going out, and then there's an eight, you know, an eight byte pad to come back as sixty four later. But the protocol, you know, was kind of defined up to like I don't know, basically you know sixty four k. But some operating systems let you send send basically a you know a 64k minus one packet and then it didn't have the space for the eight bytes and i'm pretty sure that's what would crash systems yeah, it, is like it sounds, it sounds something familiar. like that yeah, yeah so something. so we would you know at least once maybe two or three times that last day before homework was due we'd crash the physics machine um like all <laughs> pig, like pig of death the the, the physics yeah, machine pig the of death. And, and you know thinking back to my, my you know i'm a security professional now the great thing about that was there was no system logs it would just die like there, I mean, there was no history that kernel even panic. happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was kernel panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, no one was doing network. Was that a Solaire? Do you remember what OS that? Just out of curiosity, the physics server was running. Is that a? I entry? don't I mean, because U of I had had multiple labs with with all different kinds of Unix. I don't remember what those were running on. Gotcha. Pre- pretty okay. sure it was not Linux though. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we we crashed machines. Very simple attack. Um. And then we'd wait. We didn't have to say anything because the news groups would blow up with other students being pissed if they couldn't submit their homework. Um, and inevitably, the, the physics department would have to, you know, hey, we extended your deadline. You know, have two or three more days to do your homework. And then we just go back to sleep or whatever we were doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, that was pretty fun. Um, uh, same, same department, same physics department, a different year. It was the next year. Um, the ping no longer worked, right? And and the format of these these web forms is they you know they give you like they give you like uh, softball questions to enter enter you into the subject, right? Like you mm-hmm. know what what is you know conservation of energy, and you do like the simple formula, and that kind of builds up to like you know steps A B C D E like F G whatever, mm-hmm. and until the very end, like they get hard, like <laughs> they were not easy questions, um, and the way they had formulated 
the the syllabus for the class. His homework was worth, was worth like forty percent of your grade. So like you wanted to get a hundred percent. to gotcha, give you kind of kind of pad, pad your grade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, instead of obviously instead of doing the actual physics homework, I started looking at the the, the web forms and how things worked. And um, it turned out that if you'd like if you go to the page and it, you, you you had to you got one wrong or something you got one right it would put a little star next to the the input box, mm-hmm. um, and it that ended up if you'd gotten one right on the page like even the first simplest answer if you get one right it starts adding hidden input fields under the rest of the questions, and the so so I'm just trying to break this down yeah the the web server was probably like some type of CGI interface where the server would then print dynamic HTML that contained like metadata about your progress and status. Yeah, yeah. This, like, this is totally coded in like Perl. Um. Right, yeah. And, the, <laughs> and so the Perl is spitting out new hidden, new, new hidden form fields that are then, it's using as basically a session management and status tracker of what you've what you've answered so far. Yes, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly okay. the, the modern terms we would use to describe what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so it was, it was then like you would, I would just save the HTML page, modify those input fields because it was just like the name of the field and the value was the date that you got it correct. Um, and it gotcha. would just, it would reevaluate your input for all of the fields and then give you credit if it thought you'd already answered it correctly. Um, so I just get full credit on all my homework. Um, <laughs> now, I mean, that sounds bad. That sounds like I'm a horrible cheater. No, that sounds totally reasonable. <laughs> it's homework, right? It's not, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, anyway. at the same time, doing the homework is the only way to learn what they're going to ask you on the test. So, like, to some extent, you, you try. <laughs> you try as hard as you can, but then you get to that one that's just like, I'm, right, I'm not going to spend 20 minutes figuring this out. I just want credit for it. Right. I, I think you're, you're, you're better than me. I, I've, I've been known to do very little homework in life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, this is not a hacking story necessarily, but, like, the, the last class in this series was, I think I mentioned quantum mechanics. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I was, I, so I played the syllabus. It was, it was 40% homework, um, like 20% lab. And the rest was like the exams. So I'm like, well, labs are easy. They throw out like the top, the bottom three scores. So that's 60% right there. All I got to do is get, and it's multiple choice test. So I don't even have to, I could fail the entire thing. and still get like a C, which is what I did. I never went, I went to the, the syllabus, the initial lecture, never went back again. And ended up getting like a C in the class. I have no idea what it was about. Um, <laughs> and they changed the syllabus the next year. Nice. Hey, this just out of the blue reminds me of something. You went to Quincy Junior High, right? Mm-hmm. You remember that there was a homework hotline, like a phone number that you could call in and like certain teachers would use it, certain teachers wouldn't. But you could like go through this like basically PBX system <laughs> of of like retrieving like the voicemail messages of what your homework would and wouldn't be. I now that you mentioned it, I remember that existing. I never called it. I called it because all of the teachers' codes so that they all the basically their voicemail pad like this is the first phone freaking that I could ever remember <laughs> participating in. They were all initialized to one, two, three, four. And there was an administrator account that was also initialized to one, two, three, four. So even teachers that would get somewhat savvy. So it was like a very similar thing of like, I wouldn't do my Spanish homework or wouldn't want to do my Spanish homework. So I would call in, delete the homework definition and then come in and be like, it wasn't on homework hotline. So I didn't know what it was. (laughs) (laughs) And you're the probably only student that even asked 
or notice it was not on the hotline because no one's calling it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if people used it, but I do recall quite, quite, uh, quite vividly the uh, the default credential bug in the homework hotline. So, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, so we were we were getting uh, getting into <laughs> um, you know other progression, right? So we, we've kind of gone through your your physics classes. Any any other school stuff that that jumps out that that we should cover? Yeah. Um... So one my roommate for part of this um, was a good friend of mine, um, still a good friend of mine actually, um, and he he had been well, soon to be Quincy. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, also from Quincy. Um, uh, he had been using. He got caught um, by the admin of the Unix machines in the engineering department. Um, and I think this is this is safe to say. But uh, he was using. We had these uh, Unix workstations in in these different labs. And he was running a parallel password cracker on the U of I Linux machines or Unix machines to crack the BCL password file or the KSI password file. Okay, uh, so, we, so so we can tie that all together. So so we well let's let's do a, <laughs> a bit of the retro tech description, right? So you know even if you read the Cuckoo's Egg, they kind of describe this attack even back in the eighties. But so Unix systems originally didn't have etsy shadow so etsy password was a quote-unquote hash function what it really was was a single des encryption with a two character salt right so they would take you know whatever your some random combination of two letters they would do add that to the string representation of the password, and they do a single des run to generate a password hash, right? Whatever that encrypted to was the password hash. Um, but that file was on most, you know, operating systems until like 96, 97, where shadowing became the standard. That was world readable because the thought was, well, nobody can reverse that. Um, you know, that's, that's a one way hash function. And that was kind of the security procedure in play, but practically speaking, because people are bad at choosing passwords it, and that single des algorithm was pretty fast to compute. I remember cracking passwords, even on my 486 and the easy ones, the ones that were in, you know, your dictionary, you could, you could have a three, I think I had a three megabyte dictionary of common words and phrases and stuff like that. And so you could run that through, you know, a, a, a cracker program that just is iterating through uh, those words to generate the salts and find the matches, right? So that was 1990s style Unix password cracking in a nutshell. Um, and the BCL was the internet service provider we all used, a lot of the town used, and their password file was actually enabled, like YP enabled across systems. So you could do a YP cat to get the password file and then try to brute force individual or all of the accounts with, with whatever size, but it was computer constrained, right? You try to do that on 486 or something like that. It's going to take forever. So, so that's the, the attack and some of the scaling limitations. So it sounds like uh, our friend tried to, to beat that with some processing power borrowed from the university. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this wasn't like, you know, an HPC cluster, but you know, you you, and we had every Unix or every every engineering student had access to every single Unix workstation remotely. You know, even if someone else is using it in the lab, it doesn't matter. You can run a run a job in the background. 
you know, so when you when you take so that, they you know, ran our login on the workstations or something like that, so you could use your user credentials on. It might a, it might even have been they, they had remote services enabled. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. It, okay. So <clears> yeah, so you okay. just log in, and uh, yeah. So when you when you multiply that constraint from a you know a forty six to you know a hundred uh-huh. high end Unix workstations, it becomes yeah, a problem that's Ultra kind Spark of solvable. Twos or five or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah, especially when people are so bad. I mean, I still remember you were talking about like your science. I remember my eighth grade science teacher's password was princess. I remember the school library's password was 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 cutter. You know, like those those common words that that uh, that we pulled off. So, um, and then also, yeah, I remember doing that on the Quincy, the Quincy University system, right? So one of my teachers. <clears throat> was using their their internet access from from the university like the university had given teachers you know free local teachers free accounts and so shimino.quincy.edu which i also now am, am friends with the administrator you know at the time of that system but uh i remember p- cracking passwords there and that was a red hat system that required an upper letter uh, so basically it was all like proper nouns. Like everybody was like America one. <laughs> so I, I would say, you know, at the going into high school, I had roughly, you know, 15% of everybody's, uh, email password or something like that. Never really remember reading anybody's email, but, but do remember cracking a bit of it. And then, uh, yeah, by the time I was 16, I was the, the root administrator for everybody's email. So it didn't really matter too much at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of bring that up. Uh, that story up because like I mentioned at the beginning, he got caught. Um, the, the admins of the U of I engineering workstations realized he was running this. Um, and they mm-hmm. contacted the owner admin of, of, I forget if it was BCL or case night's time. Um, uh, they called him and like, Hey, you know, this guy is, is running this program on our password file and they know him. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. And that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no prosecution or anything, but I mean, that was, well, it was the first, it was the first time we realized that, Oh, we could get caught doing this. Um, so we got to be, I am careful. trying and, and, and it's looking good to, uh, to have Tom on the podcast. So if that'd be when, great when he comes on, we'll, we'll have to ask him if he remembers that phone call. Cause that's, that's pretty classic, both, uh, <laughs> our friend and, uh, and the owner of the, 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 uh, of, of BCL at the time. So that, that BCL was that first ISP in town. So from, you know, early 93, 94 until 1997, 98. That yeah, was it, had, the it primary... had to be BCL still then. Yeah. 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 And then, um, then, uh, the next <clears throat> ISP that started in town, I actually worked at, and he, you know, the owner of the previous ISP was kind of a, a technical advisor to that as well. And kind of my boss there. So, um, some, some continuity across the, uh, across the space. Yeah. I don't sure, think sure. you guys ever gave me too much of a hard time at, at case and I, but maybe you were just, uh, better at, at, uh, at not talking <laughs> about no, it. No, no. I mean, at that, at that point we, we kind of moved on. We were, I mean, we had the university, right? We were screwed around with other things. Right. So we never really bothered too much with the, and, and like that point, like all of our friends that, you know, our age are a little bit younger, except for you and a couple others were gone. Like they weren't in Quincy. They didn't need us for right. anything. So, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, I guess that brings us well, to uh, the next one. <laughs> oh, you got another one. Yeah. So um, this uh, same friend of mine, um, he, so I like, I mentioned we took a lot of our gen eds early. Uh, typically in the curriculum, he had mm-hmm. put off chemistry 
forever, like in, until like, I don't know if it was senior year, maybe. Um, and he wasn't good at it, <laughs> as, as I recall. Um, so he'd go to an exam one, one night he went to an exam, you know, it was like spring semester or something. And you know, kind of gave up in the middle, came back home and uh, realized that like the, the answers for the exam were already posted online. Like, people were still taking the test, but they were, the answers were online. And like, it's like, how, does, how the hell does that work? Like the exam's not even over yet. Um, so we, we kind of thought to ourselves like, okay, well, chances are, you know, the, the, the TAs or whatever are, are putting the, the answers online and just, you know, not linking to that until the exam starts. And then, you know, the students can go home and they can see how they did, if they can remember their answers. Um, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's not too hard. Um, so, he ended up because of the, the 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 job he had had an alphanumeric pager built into a wristwatch. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even know why how he justified getting this thing, but um, you know, so he had a watch on, no big deal. So he uh, goes to this next exam, and um, I'm like, okay, well, I'm because we, you know we got caught before. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to use your computer for this because I want you to get caught, and not me. <laughs> you know, when you say you got caught before, you got caught doing what before? Oh, no, him, him passed. No, him passing. Okay. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the passing okay, record. Gotcha. So I'm like, okay. Um, so he goes to his exam. Um, I log into his computer, um, and I go to the chemistry department's website, and like, it's not linked yet. But the the answers for these exams are like, like fall O two B and fall O two A. You know, like predictable. So I just pipe that in. You know, it's kind of you know. Kind of, I guess it was kind of security through obscurity at the time, right? You don't know the name of the file if you can't find it. Um, and there mm-hmm. were there were there were two forms of the exam, like thirty questions, you know. So I, I texted him like form A, all bunch of whole bunch of letters, and then form B, bunch of letters, and that was it. <laughs> um, and then he, I guess he got the text or the the page, I guess, and uh, got a couple wrong on purpose to make sure he wasn't too uh, too blatant too obvious and, and uh, it worked, worked like a charm man that's that's good up until uh, i mean including the fact that there was a you know alphanumeric wristwatch pager in the in the 90s that's so retro and cool i wish i had that i <laughs> i was stuck with the old uh the old motorola uh lcd screen my uh my paging life yeah awesome yeah. Um, now not computer related, but I do also remember that your senior mechanical engineering project was a a bit of a workaround hack type of thing. So I don't think they're going to revoke your, your mechanical engineering degree, but you want to talk about, (laughs) about that project in general and kind of some of the the challenges there and, and, uh, what if any hacks might've been involved? Yeah. Um, and actually it was a really cool project. Uh, I, re- I really liked it. Um, and for those who don't know, the U of, U of I senior projects for mechanical engineering, they're, they're sponsored and funded by outside industry. So a, a company will come in and say, Hey, here's like 50 grand. Uh, see if your students can solve our problem. And you know, if, well, if, if, if the students fail, then it's just a gift to the U of I, you know, like, there's no like contract. Uh, you, you don't have to succeed. Um, so it's really just about the process and, and the professor that's overseeing you. Um, and I was working with this company that they made um, uh, ether injection systems for cold starting diesel engines. So like if you're if you're a truck driver up in Canada um, and your diesel engine won't start because it's not warm, it's like this, it looks like a, uh, like those blue propane bottles that you, you use for mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just like exactly like that. except It's orange. And they just, you know, 
hit a little switch, injects ether into the system, and the engine starts. That kind uh, of uh, yep. Yeah. The, the problem was these bottles are like screwed into this this uh, uh, kind of bracket thing, and it's it's basically impossible to know how much ether is left unless you remove the bottle and weigh it, um, mm-hmm. which is real pain in the ass. So they wanted a with no modification to the bottle, they wanted to know how much ether is left in, in the system. And so they can kind of give the driver a, a notification. Anyway, so long story short, we came up with this idea that if you, if during the manufacturing of the bottle process, you stick a magnet inside the bottle, you can detect, and it'll, it'll float on top of the liquid ether while it's under pressure. And you can detect that from outside the bottle using Hall effect sensors to um, measure the electric field outside the bottle. bottle. Um, and it, it was tricky because you know the, the metal of the bottle would, would absorb the magnetic field to some extent, and you know, it wasn't super accurate, but it would work. You'd be a high, low, medium setting, basically. Um, the problem with this is it was a largely a electrical engineering solution, and we were mechanical engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, we'd had a couple of double E classes, but we weren't really good at making circuits or tuning them or anything like that. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a situation where like we built this thing and we got to, we got to give a demo in front of all the professors and all the people that sponsored this thing. And like, it was, anyone that's taking double like you, you got like the breadboard and the, the wire sticking here and there and these potentiometers that you've got turned, you get it to work. And then sometimes the float we built, we get stuck and it was janky as all hell. So, um, I came up with this plan, like, okay, well, let's let's videotape it. Well, <laughs> we'll re- videotape we'll re- it working once under ideal circumstances. Yeah, so as like, many times and I remember we we like videotaped it like four times until we got the the, the perfect one that worked. Um, and then we presented that and our, our senior design showing that it worked, and then uh, answered questions, whatever passed, got a great grade. Our, our professor loved us, thought the idea was awesome, and then. <laughs> we shipped it to the company in, in pieces in the box. I'm like, here's the, here's the schematic. Here you go. <laughs> here's the raw materials to construct your own version of this. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty fun. Can you know, kind of hardware hacky, but it was, it was a good time. Yeah, no, I mean, we, I, I think that it, it resonates with, with hopefully the intended audience of the podcast is just of like the worry of live demo fails, <laughs> right? Like a, that, that, uh, it, it's almost become, uh, you know, the the stuff of legend that any any security conference live demo is going to fail miserably. So yeah, yeah. No one wants to be on stage saying you're just hey, proactive. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I promise this works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it does not. All right. Well, uh, anything else before we wrap it? I, I mean, those are the, that was great. I just I, I don't want to cut you off because I I know you've got a million of them, but uh, if it's what what do you think? Anything to wrap it up, or are we good to go? No, I think that's it for now. I'm sure, as as I you know re-listen to this or listen to some of the other people that you have yeah, on, yeah, we'll get a, we'll I'll get think a of more. Three. Yeah, hey. no, I mean, I think, and you stole all of uh, of Trent's good stories too, so he's going to have to work extra. No, he's got more. I'll, I'll remind so. I'll remind him of a few more that he, <laughs> he has. I don't think he's he's too worried about it because uh, yeah he he was was a mischievous one for sure. All right, yeah. well, thanks, bud, and thanks for making the time again. No problem at all, Kevin. Talk to you later. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, Dennis, what do you think? Uh, I really enjoyed yet another uh, throwback from DOP. Uh, the things that spoke to me during this one uh, were definitely, uh, you know, those early websites and taking advantage of hidden fields in there. I think uh, one of my only uh, uh, hacking attempts that also 
you know, very, very minor, but uh, involved changing, you know, the, the price being sent in a hidden field from one site to the payment reconciliation site. So I definitely, uh, <laughs> with changing of the grade and marketing things marked as true, uh, could relate to that. And then, um, I had actually listened to this version early on and the ending had been cut off accidentally. I think the podcast just stopped early. So uh, I actually had to call you while I was driving to find out what happened with the um, the, the measurement uh, project that, that DOP had been working on. And you told, told uh, me, had to tell me over the phone it. that, uh, yeah, they just shipped a box of, of uh, pieces and parts to that company. It just, that, that had me cracking up. Uh, on my drive. So I thought that story was, was awesome. Uh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I, I first heard that story, I think when it was going on, cause I remember like visiting DOP like during that time and he's like, here's the plan. Kev. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, uh, yeah. So fun. Um, yeah. So thank you. Do- I mean, we're going to hear more and get into multiples, whether we, we keep doing, um, throwbacks or eventually evolve to have some other segments about, um, I'd love to, what do you, what do you think about the idea of having like a, uh, like an, a breach segment where somebody comes and shares some inside information about a breach that happened long enough ago that nobody cares about. <laughs> I think I, I like, I, I think, th- uh, keeping these same guests and coming back and, and telling different themed stories. That's a good, that's a good way. Yeah, to we've keep- got, well, we definitely got a lot more to, to, to cover in the throwback side, but I was thinking about evolutions of that and breach breach stories might be a, an upcoming I like feature. It. That's, that's a good All right. One. Well, you just left this podcast studio. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> my freaking, okay. um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis, for uh, for co-hosting this podcast with me on, on episode number four. And yeah. Okay. A pleasure as always. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.